Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Do you find yourself dreaming of going to Olympic National Park or of going back to Olympic National Park? Traveler's Rebecca Latson had the opportunity to visit the park on Washington's Olympic Peninsula earlier this year and came home with some amazing photographs. In a story that ran on The Traveler this past week, Latson explained how she got them to help you with your photographic skills. We also reported on some parks that are expanding access for e-bike riders, looked at the graffiti problem at Glen Canyon National Recreation Area in Utah, and noted concerns from Park Service archaeologists about how border wall construction at Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument in Arizona could threaten archaeological resources there. You can find those and other stories about parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, Professor Robert Young from Western Carolina University joins me to discuss Hurricane Dorian's impact on the barrier islands that make up Cape Lookout National Seashore. Erica Zambella and I discuss the uproar by some media over the end of life of Glacier National Park's glaciers, And we conclude this week's show with a look at how to make the most from a winter trip to Voyagers National Park in Minnesota. It's not as unforgiving of a winter landscape as you might think. Barrier islands are tricky things, especially if you want to build something and have it stay intact as they're constantly in motion. These ribbons of sand are ground up, endlessly tumbled, and spit out as geologic remains. In the case of Capes Hatteras and Lookout on the outer banks of North Carolina, the sands are eroded bits of the Appalachian Mountains, constantly being shipped downstream by rivers and deposited in the Atlantic. There, surging longshore currents constantly rearrange them. Hurricanes accentuate these effects, shuttling veritable boatloads of sand downstream, shoving around entire barrier islands and even tearing islands in half. As climate change leads to more potent hurricanes, are barrier islands and the national seashores they hold at greater risk of being torn apart? Robert Young is director of Western Carolina University's program for the study of developed shorelines. He took a close look at what Hurricane Dorian did to Cape Lookout and was astonished at the impacts to the barrier islands there. We have Professor Young with us today to discuss the storm's aftermath. Welcome to The Traveler, Professor. Glad to be with you. Now, in recent years, um, hurricanes have really exerted their force on barrier islands. I know back in 2012, um, Hurricane Sandy tore a break at Fire Island National Seashore in the wilderness area up there. And we're seeing constant damage, it seems, every year to Highway 12 at Cape Hatteras. What, what's your outlook? Are, are these storms indeed becoming more potent and, and exacting more force on the barrier islands? Well, I think that there uh, have definitely been a variety of different factors that are changing our barrier islands over the long and the short term. So we certainly have seen a flurry of stronger storms, more frequent storms, particularly uh, passing by Cape Lookout over the last five to 10 years. And in the background, we have rising sea level uh, that is causing these entire systems to adjust to long-term change. Um, Sea level change is not something new 
for the coast. Uh, sea levels have gone up and down for millions, hundreds of millions of years. The difference now, of course, is that we humans are a, a part of these systems as well. And so we try to build on the barrier islands in uh, our coastal resort communities. And we try and uh, find ways for visitors to access them when it comes to our national parks like Cape Lookout and Cape Hatteras. Back in 2018, your program in advance of Hurricane Florence uh, released a coastal vulnerability assessment that said more than two-thirds of the infrastructure evaluated at Cape Lookout had high vulnerability to coastal hazards and a combined replacement value of more than $40 million with the highest vulnerability infrastructure at uh, Portsmouth Village. Has that assessment lived up to um, what was written? Are are we seeing that type of damage at Cape Lookout and Portsmouth Village specifically? I'm afraid so. Uh, The early reports that we're getting from the field indicate that almost all of the structures were damaged to some degree, with some structures a total loss. So, uh, you know, I think that the vulnerability assessment did a a pretty good job of giving us some sort of a preview for what might be at risk long-term and Cape Lookout. And Dorian was not a monster storm. You know, this was a category one hurricane going by offshore. Now, the the way the winds were circulating um, produced an unusually large storm surge um, on Cape Lookout for a category one storm. But... So the end message is that places like Cape Lookout with the combination of repeated storm impacts and rising sea level are becoming more and more exposed or susceptible to even a category one or two hurricane like Dorian. Is it possible to speculate what might have happened were it a a category three or even a five storm? (laughs) Well, um, yes. Certainly, the uh, the storm surge would have been a little bit higher, and we probably would have lost more structures. Uh, I think that probably most of the visitor areas on Cape Lookout National Seashore will be able to reopen eventually. But the degree of geomorphic change, the amount of sand that's been lost, and the number of breaches across the island will mean that visitor access is probably going to be a little bit different in the future than it has been in the past. And what do you mean by that? Obviously, the, the the fishing cabins, if you will, um, took a pretty good beating. Um, I saw some of the pictures of the the aftermath. Would you envision the the Park Service possibly changing some of its uh, management plans as to what are appropriate um, infrastructure to be had on the Cape Lookout? Well, I think that you know, and I I hate to preempt the superintendent's um, official planning for what he will and will not decide to do in Cape Lookout. But I know for a fact that they are taking these changes very seriously right now as they contemplate how visitor access and visitor use will be in the future. And um, it may be reasonable for those uh, cabins at Long Point to have reduced services. You know, it's hard to say whether the Park Service is going to be able to guarantee, uh, you know, utilities in the future, water. Uh, I think that a lot of that is is still yet to be determined. And the degree to which people will be able to move up and down the beach along core banks 
will also be determined to some degree by how the breaches that have formed heal over time. Some of them are clearly going to be ephemeral and are not having any water exchange between the Atlantic and the estuary right now, but some of them were uh, reasonably good size and will not heal so quickly. And, uh, you know, the fate of those breaches is still to be determined. And, you know, that will make it a little bit more difficult for folks to hop in their truck or their ATV and sort of zoom up and down the island. Sure, sure. Now, there were, what, more than more than four dozen uh, new inlets cut from the Atlantic to the core sound? Yeah, I don't think anybody's actually counted them, but there there are at least that many, yes. And and the interesting thing is that they were actually cut in the other direction. So the water was flowing from the sound, which is you know the estuary behind the barrier island. For those of you who aren't familiar with the area, this is called Pamlico Sound. It's a broad, shallow body of water. And the storm surge that impacted Cape Lookout actually came from the back. It came from the sound and the water flowed across the barrier towards the Atlantic, which is pretty unusual to have that kind of flow across the island during a storm like this. Now, you mentioned that, you know, um, some, many uh, of these breaches will heal on their own as as time goes by. Um, Up at Fire Island, of course, there was the breach created by Sandy back in 2012. And uh, I believe that one's still open, isn't it? It is still open. And it was, you know, one of the best things that's happened to Fire Island in a long time, I think. It's important for people to keep in mind that these kinds of storm-driven changes have happened on barrier islands as long as we've had barrier islands. Barrier islands are storm-adapted environments. You know, the overwash that occurs during a storm, the formation of new inlets, inlets opening and closing. You know, this is what barrier islands need to do. And the beauty of a national park is that we always hope that these are places where those natural processes can actually uh, happen. You know, we don't have to stop them because it's not a a developed barrier island like Atlantic City, New Jersey, or, um, you know, Nags Head, North Carolina. It's a place where the processes can actually operate. And there are species that need that dynamic sand movement. There are species that are specifically adapted to nest on overwash fans and there are grasses that like that disturbance so you know we we can't view these processes as being uh, negative necessarily for these ecosystems and for the natural resources Uh, they can just maybe get in the way of us humans a little bit yeah and i believe uh, up at fire island um, one of the big benefits was the um, replenishment of you will of of waters behind um, the sound, I can't remember right off the top of my head what uh, what water impoundment that was between the mainland and Fire Island, but the, the breach allowed the, the Atlantic Ocean to kind of refresh it. Absolutely, no question. The, the water quality in Great South Bay um, on Long Island is the best that it's been in decades <laughs> since that inlet opened up. And the, the baymen um, are having better luck with their fisheries. And when you have a, a breach that forms like that, you get what we call a flood tidal delta will form behind the breach. So sand will come into the inlet, be transported back behind the island and will form a, a small sand delta. And that delta 
will get colonized by marsh grasses. And over the long term, it provides the, the, the sand and the structure that the island needs in order to respond to storms and sea level rise in the future. So these are good things. We've been talking today with Professor Robert Young. He's director of Western Carolina University's Program for the Study of Developed Shorelines, and he recently had a chance to, to visit Cape Lookout National Seashore and look at the impacts Hurricane Dorian had there. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia, you can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Professor Young, you mentioned that um, national parks, national seashores are um, the mission of the park service is to allow natural processes to proceed. And, and yet on, on some of these national seashores, um, that's kind of difficult. And, and I point to Cape Cod National Seashore and, and certainly Cape Hatteras National Seashore, where we're seeing almost annually um, hurricane damage to, to Highway 12, the main access um, up and down the Barrier Island there. Any idea what the seashore should do in, in those respects? I mean, there's kind of a conflict between allowing the natural processes to occur and, and buttressing the infrastructure to prevent uh, damage from these storms. Well, most national seashores and nas- national parks have to walk some balance, right, between the public use and visitor access and infrastructure that is really outside of the park's control. And NC-12 on the northern outer banks of North Carolina is a perfect example. It's it's not up to the National Park Service to determine whether or not folks in the northern outer banks will continue to access Buxton and Hatteras Village on NC-12. So the park has to do the best that they can to balance allowing those natural processes to continue with making sure that they are meeting the needs of the locality and the state for safety and evacuation. So it's a, you know, it's a little bit of a complicated dance, but the Park Service does, I think, you know, the very best job that they possibly can. In my visits to those three seashores, um, I found Cape Lookout to to be what I describe as, as truly a wild seashore in that there's really not a lot of development on there. Um, you have to take a, a, a skiff or a ferry to, to get to the barrier islands, and then there's just uh, some some um, fishing cabins, if you will, in addition to the lighthouse and the, the keeper's house there. Um, does that allow for Cape Lookout to, to be kind of a, um, 
not a guinea not a guinea pig, but but certainly a, a wonderful place to do science related to um, storms and their impact on barrier islands. Yeah, I think, so as a scientist, I think what we would say is that Cape Lookout is our control, right? So Cape Lookout continues to remind us what all of the East Coast barrier islands would look like if we hadn't paved them over and covered them with hotels and vacation homes and things like that. So places like Cape Lookout are absolutely invaluable, both as laboratories for understanding what natural barrier islands are supposed to be and look like, as reserves for the species that need those refuges where there aren't overdeveloped shorelines. And you know, to some degree, I think Cape Lookout is the, the canary in the coal mine because we can see the degree to which um, Cape Lookout is beginning to respond very rapidly to storm impacts like Dorian's. And, you know, I think that that's a harbinger of things to come for some of the other developed barrier islands on the East Coast. It's not going to be as easy as it used to be to hold these shorelines in place like we've been doing for the last several decades. At Cape Lookout, fortunately, it's okay if we don't hold that shoreline in place. It's still going to be okay. But for these developed barrier islands, there are going to be some very tricky issues that they're going to be dealing with over the next couple of decades. Is it is it too soon to say whether Cape Lookout is is healing in itself naturally following Dorian? Um, I, I saw mention that um, uh, quite a bit of sand was was taken away, um, volume of sand taken away from the barrier islands there. And you know, is it something that will naturally replenish itself? It would naturally replenish itself with given enough time, and it has in the past. You know, the the trick at the moment though is. There have been several storms that have impacted the island in the last five to 10 years, and we have rising sea level going on in the background. So the barrier hasn't had uh, the kind of time that, that you'd like it to have to repair and rebuild dunes and rebuild the sand volume. And you know, if the rate of sea level rise increases in the future, then it's going to make it even more difficult for these barrier systems to completely heal and rebuild. So, but that doesn't necessarily mean the end to Cape Lookout. It just means that we have a Cape Lookout that's a little bit different. Maybe lower elevation, it may overwash more frequently, but it's, you know, it's still going to be there as a barrier island and an important natural resource for the U.S. as Cape Lookout National Seashore. Um, going forward, uh, are you and your staff, your team, condu- continuing to conduct research on the aftermath, if you will, of Hurricane Dorian? Absolutely, and we, you know, we really hope to be working with our partners in the National Park Service to answer some of those questions that you just asked. We will be watching over time uh, to see how Cape Lookout fares through the rest of the hurricane season and then through the nor'easter season, and to to see the degree to which the island can rebuild its sand volume and which of these breaches close back up and if any of them stay open and you know how that all should impact the way that we manage Cape Lookout National Seashore for uh, visitor access and historic preservation and the preservation of natural resources. Is there any one thing in particular that you'll be watching going forward? Well, really the fate of those breaches. I mean, that's the most interesting thing to us at the moment. So we're, we're going to be watching that pretty closely. 
Yeah, I've seen some of the, the aerial images, and uh, it, it's really quite, um, I don't know if devastating is, is quite the right word, or, or just uh, amazing at uh, the cuts that have been made in the barrier islands there. Yeah, again, I, you know, I wouldn't use the word devastating, because to, to me, those, it's all natural processes, and so interesting is the word <laughs> I would use. Fascinating, haven't ever seen anything quite like it before. Will it provide some management challenges for visitor access? Yes, absolutely. But hey, this is what we have natural shorelines for, so we can see how this is supposed to work. Yeah. Um, have you set up any specific monitoring um, on the islands? Uh, everything that we do is is really done remotely through um, aerial photography and, and and that kind of thing. So, you know, we don't really need these days. For the kind of changes that we're looking at, it's actually much easier to do it remotely. Okay. We've been talking today with Professor Robert Young. He's the director of Western Carolina University's program for the study of developed shorelines. And he and his team have been taking a close look at what Hurricane Dorian did to Cape Lookout and its barrier islands on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Professor Young, really appreciate your time today. And uh, we'll be curious to see... um, how the seashore heals itself going forward and what your research uh, points to. My pleasure. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Climate science is just that, science. It ebbs and flows through the refinement of technology and physical observation. But the Trump administration's refusal to recognize the science its land management agencies conduct neither ebbs nor flows. You could say it's frozen in place. Sadly, that clampdown is preventing a thorough discussion of what's going on with the glaciers at Glacier National Park. Back in June, there was some something of a furor from some media over the decision by staff at Glacier to remove interpretive displays that had said, quote, computer models indicate the glaciers will all be gone by the year 2020, unquote. Fanning the uproar was that the Park Service had, quote, quietly, unquote, removed the display. Now, parks do from time to time change interpretive materials, and sometimes they announce the changes, and sometimes they don't. Fine. But what's really disturbing about this episode is that the administration's gatekeepers at the U.S. Geological Survey and the National Park Service 
evidently don't want to hear their experts provide detailed discussions of what's going on with Glacier's glaciers. The short story, Glacier Superintendent Jeff Mao told me, was a change in the weather, and he suggested I contact USGS researcher Dan Fagri, who has studied the park's glaciers, as well as those in surrounding national forests, since 1991. He's the expert. Unfortunately, Fagri wasn't allowed to talk to me. He said that the USGS communications staff declined my request and felt it should go to the National Park Service headquarters staff in Washington, D.C. Now, in 2019, false or misleading information spreads like wildfire across the internet and associated social media channels. With issues as divisive as climate change, such inaccuracies not only pop up with surprising frequency, but also muddle the waters on a global crisis that demands immediate action. As Karen Kirk says in a recent article for Yale Climate Connections, quote, rebutting myths about climate change is an endless game of whack-a-mole. But one side effect is that each dose of misinformation can prompt a look at the real science and offer a reason to share credible, up-to-date information that might not have gotten much attention were it not for the myth, unquote. Now, today I have Erica Zambella with me to discuss the odd story making the rounds on Facebook. Erica, what piqued Kirk's interest in this story? So Kirk's interest in this story was piqued because uh, Montana is their home state. And so when these stories kept popping up, and you know when things go viral, they pop up across social media platforms, they pop up in different publications, just all over the internet. And it was such an odd story that conflicted with so many of the other narratives about climate change that are out there that Kirk wanted to investigate. And like you mentioned, there was some changes that prompted what quickly became spiraling outrage. And basically, there was a model that came out in the early 2000s that showed all of Glacier National Park's glaciers would be gone by 2030. Then as they updated the model with more carbon emission projections and more data, they found that it was actually melting even faster. And so that's why the park put on their original signs that all the glaciers would be gone by 2020. But here's the thing about science. Science is hardly ever static. It's a ever-refining, ever-continuing process to collect more data, do better analysis, and to update their conclusions. And so when they did new research in, uh, that was published in 2017, they found that as glaciers continually retreat higher and higher and higher in elevation, they actually become better at resisting melting. And this is good news potentially because it means that we might have a few more years to save our glaciers than we previously thought. And it's mostly because, you know, the elevation is higher, the slopes are more shaded, which means the glaciers are kept cooler, there's more wind, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's why the parks updated their signs because their models had updated as a result of more information. However, changing their signs is one of the things that sparked this round of stories. Now, of course, one thing that that needs to continually be pointed out, I believe, is that there is climate change and there is weather, and the two are not comparable. 
Absolutely. So one of the things that these stories that claimed the glaciers were actually growing pointed to was that the the glaciers would increase during very, very cold winters or winters with a lot of snow and that they couldn't possibly be decreasing with these very cold, very intense winters. But Glacier National Park and associated scientists do very intense measurements of the glaciers. And even during winters that are more intense or more cold or or get more snow, they can't keep up with the ever-rising temperatures in the summer, which are really leading to accelerated glacier loss. So that's a difference between climate change and weather, which is what you mentioned. Right. And the USGS, what they will say is that glaciers, uh, rivers of ice have actually shrunk by 68% through 2015. That's the most recent data that they've given out when they covered a little bit more than five square miles. And, you know, again, that's evidence of long-term climate change as opposed to short-term colder winters that uh, might ebb and flow. Definitely. And what I appreciate about these particular glaciers is that when the extensive measurements were done in 1966, 1998, 2005, and again in 2015, the the results and the the monitoring, the data set, some of the photos were released to the public in 2017. So if you want to see for yourself, you can. Um, as as uh, Kirk mentioned in the in the article, there's quote no need for imaginary secrecy unquote. And so when people are claiming that the glaciers are growing, there's just no data to to support that. Now, what's interesting is, um, as for glaciers, interpretive materials, last winter the park received funding to update those in the St. Mary Visitor Center. And the new displays, they do not contain an end-of-life date, so to speak, for the 26 glaciers that were counted in 2015, but leave it rather open-ended based on how and when we act in response to human accelerated climate change. One thing I'm curious to know, Erica, is what are rangers in the park allowed to tell inquisitive visitors who wonder about the glacier's current lifespan? I mean, after all, many people go to Glacier National Park to see glaciers, to see these incredible rivers of ice. Are rangers given uh, some new interpretive messages to pass on, or do they simply say the park works closely with the U.S. Geological Survey to understand glacial retreat and how it impacts the park ecosystem? That's the message I was given when I inquired um, what exactly was the message the park was giving to visitors. Yeah, and I think there's actually different ways that you can communicate the same message without pinpointing an actual year. Some glacier areas I've seen have been putting up these interpretive memorials that say they address future generations and they say only you will know if we have saved these glaciers or not from climate change or from human disturbance, etc. So I think that's actually an interesting way that the, the park staff could showcase that we are having a direct impact on these glaciers without trying to say, you know, they're going to be gone by 2030 or 2035 or 2025 because those projections are going to change as the science gets better and better. It's really important to note, Kurt, too, that glaciers are declining everywhere, not just in the national park, not just in the United States, but the Himalayas, South America, Antarctica, Africa, the Alps, and Greenland. And when 
the glaciers melt, it's not just a problem because this aesthetically beautiful thing is lost. It's it's really a problem because glaciers form the water source for many downstream communities. Also, without that critical water source, wildfires become more likely and stronger, and also critical wildlife habitat is lost. And so what was sort of odd about the story in Glacier National Park is that, again, it is in stark contrast with the glaciers that we're losing across the world. And Glaciers really are the canary in the coal mine. You know, they're telling us that it's getting too hot and that we got to do something about climate change now. And going forward, it will be really interesting to see what that science uh, tells us and what uh, um, those who spend their life livelihoods analyzing the glaciers can can glean from what's going on. Um, I, I would remind... Um, National Park Traveler listeners that uh, we did file a Freedom of Information Act uh, request back in June to get all the paperwork behind the decision to take those displays down um, that said the glaciers would be gone by 2020, and we're, we're still waiting to have that uh, um, request um, answered by the park. For any um, listeners out there who have been to Glacier and who have talked to rangers about the, uh, the glaciers and their uh, retreat or their stalling in retreat, um, we'd love to hear what you were told, and you can reach us at news at nationalparkstraveler.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Winter is a cold, snowy, and decidedly solitary season at Voyagers National Park in Minnesota, where fellow visitors can be hard to spot. Take December of 2018, for instance. The park recorded just 152 visitors, though that was up from 110 the year before. But if you relish skimming through the woods on skis or snowmobiles, like to study tracks of what crossed the meadows and frozen ponds the night before, or crave to see the dancing northern lights overhead... Well, a visit to Voyagers should be given some serious consideration. Don't let the average midwinter high temperatures in the teens, or overnight lows in the single digits, or the four to six feet of snow on the ground discourage you. Today's winter clothing is engineered to keep you warm and dry, and warming up over a cup of hot chocolate is a treasured experience. What is there to do at Voyagers from December into March? With more than a little help from the staff at Voyagers National Park Association, here are some ideas for a three-day excursion. On your first day in the park, 
You could embrace the cold, crisp air and fresh snow by immersing yourself in the tranquility of voyagers with some cross-country skiing. The Echo Bay Trail is located three miles from the Cabotogama Visitor Center off County Road 122. This trail offers a wide path that takes you from aspens to pines as you glide through lowlands and rocky outcrops. Sections of this trail are groomed for skiing in the winter months, perfect for novice skiers, while other parts of the trail are of intermediate difficulty. No worries if you don't have your gear. The Rainy Lake Visitor Center offers a limited number of adult and child-sized skis, boots, and poles, all free of charge. Call the center at 218-286-5258 for availability. From the Visitor Center, you can access the Tilson Creek Ski Trails via a mile-long connector trail. The Minnesota Department of Natural Resources manages this 10-mile network of interconnected ski trails. Several routes are possible ranging from short loops to longer excursions. This system has several hills to enjoy, but none are particularly challenging. At the southernmost point, skiers can look out over Black Bay. There are three shelters, one on the connector trail, one at the end of the green trail that runs one mile in from the Tilson Bay Ski Trail head on Highway 11 East, and one on the red trail on the way to Black Bay. By heading a mile north from the visitor center across the frozen Rainy Lake Ice Road, you can access the Black Bay Ski Trail. This classic-only cross-country ski trail is groomed by park staff. It's a delightful excursion across frozen beaver ponds and into the pine forest of the Cabotogama Peninsula. There are three connected three-mile loops, plus a one-mile beginner's loop. The main loops, the Pine Ridge and Upper Pine Trails, are challenging ski trails with substantial hills to climb and descend. There is a shelter at the intersection of the Pine and Upper Pine Trails, where you can take a break, bask in the sun, and listen to the surrounding forest. You can also launch your cross-country skiing exploration from other gateway communities around the park. Now, cross-training is always wise, and after a day of cross-country skiing, some time spent on snowshoes offers your leg muscles a nice change of pace, and a slower pace can be a godsend. As you move about the forests and clearings and voyagers on snowshoes, you're more apt to pause and glance around at your surroundings and notice the subtler aspects of winter. A beauty of snowshoeing is that you really don't need a set trail, but can simply follow your toes. That said, there are some established trails for snowshoers. The Blind Ash Bay Trail consists of a two and a half mile loop of moderate difficulty. It's accessible via the Ash River Visitor Center trailhead. The narrow winding trail allows you to experience the wonders of the boreal forest and view spectacular scenery. Along with skis, the Rainy Lake Visitor Center has a number of snowshoes in many shapes and sizes, also available free of charge. Just call ahead for availability. From the Visitor Center, you can access the 1.7-mile Oberholzer Trail, snowshoeing through forests and across wetlands. Elsewhere in the park, all open trails are great for snowshoeing, as long as there's enough snow, of course. If snowshoeing seems too sedate, head to the hills with sled in hand. Once the snow piles up, Voyager's Spung Island Sledding Hill is open and accessible from the Cabotogama Lake Ice Road near the Cabotogama Lake Visitor Center. It even has picnic trails and a fire ring for lunch or snack breaks and warming up. There's also a skating rink there. Experienced snowshoers and skiers shouldn't overlook the chance to camp in the backcountry. Camping offers amazing opportunities for night sky and wildlife viewing. Perhaps you'll even catch the northern lights or hear a wolf pack howling. Keep in mind, though, 
that all overnight stays at campsites within the park require a reservation in advance. On your third day in Voyagers, consider a snowmobile ride. Voyagers is one of the national parks that fully embraces snowmobiling. There are 110 miles of staked and groomed trails for cruising through the park. Be sure to obey all closure signs, speed limits, and familiarize yourself with the park's snowmobile map. Areas may be closed for your safety and to protect sensitive resources. One particularly beautiful trail runs from the Rainy Lake Visitor Center down Black Bay to Gold Portage and then east through the chain of lakes. It exits onto Lake Cabotogama, runs west and north across the ice, and returns on the Gold Portage Trail back to Rainy Lake. You could use your snowmobile to reach an ice fishing site as well. Winter quiet, rugged piney shores, and outstanding angling make voyagers an ice angler's paradise. Just follow the rules. Place ice houses at least 50 feet from the center of snowmobile trails and the ice road. Check ice conditions before going out. And be sure to have a fishing license and ice house registration from the park. Exploring the Rainy Lake Ice Road in your own rig is another great way to experience voyagers in the winter. You can find the ice road from the boat launch at the Rainy Lake Visitor Center. Another option is the Cabotogama Lake Ice Road, which travels between the boat launches of the Ash River and Cabotogama Lake Visitor Centers. The speed limits on these routes is a slow and steady 30 miles per hour. Familiarize yourself with safety on the ice roads and know that ice road routes change from year to year depending on ice conditions. Contact the Rainy Lake Visitor Center for latest ice conditions or check the park's website before planning a trip to see which ice roads are open for the season. Start or end your day or days in the park with a visit to the Rainy Lake Visitor Center. You can glean park information from the rangers there, learn more about the history of Voyagers National Park, and pick up skis or snowshoes for the day. Come back after your day of winter activities to warm up and browse the park bookstore. No matter what winter activities you choose, you'll come away from Voyagers National Park with a new appreciation for winter and the beauties of the park when it's snowbound. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. You can suggest topics for future shows by emailing them to news at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio Series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.